On Sunday evenings, we're looking together at the book of Galatians. Uh, For those of you who are perhaps with us for the first time on a Sunday evening, uh, Sunday evenings uh, sermons are much briefer uh, than Sunday mornings, generally. And uh, I tend to understand the tiredness of people at the end of the Lord's Day and Now, a number of you who are here regularly have missed some very important things if you have been away on your vacations or perhaps on missions trips, and I have noticed some of you who missed uh, two of the most important texts in the book of Galatians. Let me point them out, and you can go back very easily and catch up online listening to the sermons, Um, but uh, one of the texts is found in chapter 2, verse 16. This is the first time the Apostle Paul ever uses the term justification. Uh, In chapter 2, verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. The other passage that I think was very, very crucial in understanding Paul's argument is in chapter 3 with a focus upon verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Absolutely crucial for understanding the argument of the Apostle Paul in this book. Now tonight our emphasis is on verses 15 through 25, but I think it would be important if we go back to verse 10 of chapter 3 and pick it up there. May the Lord bless the reading and exposition of his word, Galatians 3, uh, 10 through 25. This is the word of God. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now we pick it up here tonight. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. 
Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now, the Apostle Paul has used absolutely astounding language earlier in verse 13 when he tells us that Christ became a curse for us. The law is not of faith. The law of God brings a curse. And if we are going to be saved and redeemed, if we are going to be accepted by God, justified, then someone must bear the curse of the law for us. So astounding is what Paul the Apostle says in Galatians 3.13 that many a commentator actually tries to sidestep it and reinterpret it in ways. They simply can hardly believe that Paul the Apostle would say that Christ became a curse. There is one commentator who actually makes Paul say precisely what he does not say in this verse because he cannot believe it. But my friends, he means exactly what he said. Christ became for his people a curse. He took upon himself the damnation that belonged to us when he went to the cross. And this is the good news of the gospel, apart from which there is no gospel. You know, I'm still finding very, very frequently Christians who don't get this, who don't understand this this great exchange, that my sin was placed upon Christ, that his perfect record, his righteousness might be credited to me, might be imputed to the believer. And yet the gospel, the gospel is so, so clear on this, and it is absolutely fundamental to our faith. There are those today who are questioning this. It seems that the old heresies continue to come up. And in the so-called new perspective on Paul, in the so-called federal vision, these things are being once again questioned and in cases, certain cases denied. And when this happens, then Christians will be drawn once again into that old works righteousness and believing that somehow they contribute to their own redemption and salvation. My friends, it is all of grace from first to last. It is all because of what Christ did when He shed His blood on the cross for us. He bore the curse of the law for us. That's what Paul has been teaching thus far. The law was never intended to save anyone. It comes with thunder. It comes with vengeance. It comes with divine anger against sinners. Now, Paul is so clear on these things but he understands that certain questions are going to be raised in the minds of his hearers. And there are two questions that are either explicit or implicit here that the apostle is answering for us. Uh, The first question is, did the law nullify the covenant? The covenant was given to Abraham, the promise that uh, in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, that the gospel of Jesus Christ would come to his descendants, and indeed to all of the nations... And if that is the case, then when the law came 430 years later, did it nullify the promise of the covenant of grace? That's the first question. The second question is, what is the purpose of the law anyway? Why the law? What's the purpose of the law of God? Now, the first point I want to make is an answer to the question, did the law nullify the covenant? And the first point is, 
God's promise of grace is secure. God's promise of grace is secure. And the argument of the Apostle Paul we find in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even when a man made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. And so the Apostle Paul says, look, even with human covenants, when a covenant is made, you don't add a codicil to it. Uh, It is ratified. It is something that is firm. It is something that is complete. And he argues from the lesser to the greater. If that is true in human covenants, then certainly it is true of God's covenant of grace. His argument is quite simple. God's covenant of grace is certainly greater than any human covenant. And if human covenants are sacrosanct, then God's covenant of grace with his people is certainly sacrosanct. The law of God did not remove or nullify or add a codicil to or in any way change the promise of pure sovereign grace that was given to Abraham and to the nations through him. And so that's Paul's argument. Paul's conclusion to the argument is found in verse 17. This is what I, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Now this is very important for you and for me. We are the Gentiles to whom the promise was given to Abraham that the gospel would come. We are the ones to whom that promise of sovereign grace has come. It is important for you to know that the promise once given by God, that nothing will annul it, that nothing will tear it apart, that nothing will remove it, that nothing will change it, that it will not be mixed somehow with law or mixed somehow with works. No, no, he has promised that grace. And Paul's argument and conclusion is that the law of God does not in any way alter God's grace. Paul's affirmation then is the promised inheritance is secure. And the promised inheritance is secure for two reasons. First of all, the promised inheritance is secure because of the one who does the promising. Did you notice how he put it in verse 18? For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Actually, God graced it, gave it in grace, could be a a potential translation of the passage there. Because God is who he is, because he is sovereign, immutable, because he is unchangeable in his nature, because he is a God of grace and mercy, a God of love, because of his infinite power and wisdom, when God makes that promise to Abraham, that promise will be fulfilled. And when he makes a promise of grace to you, people of God, that promise is fulfilled. It will be what he says it will be. And so the promised inheritance is secure because of the one who promises, but also the promised inheritance is secure because of the one to whom the promise was made. To whom was the promise ultimately made? Well, verse 16 tells us, Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. Talk about believing in the inspiration and authority of the Bible. Paul the Apostle argues on the basis of a singular rather than a plural. And he says, ultimately, the one to whom the promise is made is Christ Jesus himself, Therefore, since the promise of the inheritance is made to Christ, you can believe that the promise is absolutely secure. God made the promise in the covenant of grace 
to his own dear son. And so the promise is secure. Well, I hope that you take great comfort in that. That now you, members of the covenant of grace, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, resting upon him alone for salvation, you don't have to worry. Will the inheritance be there for me in the future or will it not? Is the inheritance mine now or maybe it will change tomorrow? You know, God is simply not like the guy who takes the daisy saying, He loves me, He loves me not, He loves me, He loves me not. When God says He loves you, He loves you. When God says He gives you grace, He gives you grace. When God says He shows you mercy, He shows you mercy. When God says He chooses His people chosen, they are. When He says Christ died for you, He died for you. When He promises an inheritance, that inheritance is firm and immutable. So that's the first point. God's promises of grace are secure. Now, if the law could do nothing to set aside the promise, here's the promise that is given to Abraham, ultimately to Christ himself, if the promise is secure, and then 430 years later, God gives the law at Mount Sinai, what's the purpose? Why then the law? What is the purpose of the law? Well, let's answer that question. The law of God was given to point to our need. And we're going to unpack that in a variety of ways. Do you see how he puts it in verse 19? Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place by angels by an intermediary, Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. That means that God unilaterally is committed to accomplishing what he has promised. And so, why then the law? The law points to our need. It was given because of transgressions. As we are told in Romans chapter 5, it actually aggravates transgression. It actually shows us more deeply who we are. It uncovers our sin. Or to put it all another way, the law demonstrates our guilt by nature. The law demonstrates that we are guilty by nature. Now, do this exercise sometime as I did this week. Take down the larger catechism, the Westminster Confession of Faith, shorter catechism, the larger catechism. The larger catechism is called larger because it's large. It unpacks things very, very fully. And if you've not read the larger catechism, you have an education coming. But take the section on the Ten Commandments. And it talks about what the law demands and requires, and it talks about the negatives and the positives. What does it forbid? What does it require? And it unpacks every commandment very, very fully. And you have to think sometimes, where does that come from? And then you begin to understand the inner workings of the law of God and to see the law of God in its holiness and in its perfection. There is not a time in which you could open that up and read what the Catechism rightly says about every law of God without sensing within yourself, I am a sinner in need of grace. Now that's the point here. If you understand the law of God in its perfection, then it drives you to Christ, it shows you your need, it demonstrates your guilt, it shows the blackness of our human hearts apart from grace. And so the law points to our need, the law demonstrates our guilt, but also the law points to a future judgment. The law says to you and to me, there is a future judgment coming, and if you're depending upon me, the law, in order that you might be ready for that judgment, you have another, another thing coming to you. 
No, no, you can't depend upon me. You can't depend upon the law. I'm not here to save you, the law says. I'm here to condemn you. I'm not here to save you. I'm here to judge you. And when you come on that great day before the sovereign head and king, uh, then his law will be the standard. It's an amazing thing to me how in the second chapter of the book of Romans, the 14th verse, the apostle Paul says that the work of the law is written on the heart of the Gentile, those who do not have the law codified, those who were not a part of the Jewish nation, that nonetheless they know within their own consciences the law of God. It doesn't say the law is written there. It says the work of the law is written there, which is a very, very significant thing. That that work of condemnation, that work of judgment, is even in the hearts of those who have never read the Ten Commandments, have never even heard of the law of God, in some codified manner. And so the law points to our need, it demonstrates our guilt, it points to a future judgment, which means that the law shows that only a a spotless garment will do. If you come to the law of God and it shows you your need and it uncovers your heart and it shows you the blackness of your soul apart from grace and it demonstrates your depravity, then how am I going to be saved? The only way that I can be saved is by a Savior who does for me what I could not do for myself, who redeemed me, or as Paul has just said in verse 13, who bore the curse of the law in my place. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. He bore the condemnation of the law. He took upon himself my judgment That's what makes the atonement such a wonderful thing. That's the purpose of the law. It's to lead us to Christ, to show us grace, to show us our need of a Savior. The third thing I want to see with you in this text is simply this. How does the law lead to Christ? If the purpose of the law is to uncover my guilt, to show me my heart, to show me my need of grace... How does it do this? How does the law lead to Christ? And Paul says it happens in two ways. First of all, he says the law of God is like a guardian. You see there in verse 23. Now before faith faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith should be revealed. And so it's like a guardian that holds holds someone captive, uh, leading them on until the faith who is Christ himself, should be revealed. And then he says, not only is the law like a guardian, but the law also is a kind of custodian. He says that in verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now that word guardian that's translated this way in the ESV is from the Greek word paedagogos. You hear the word pedagogue? We derive from that. A paedagogos in the ancient Greek world was a slave who had the responsibility of making sure that children learned. He wasn't the teacher. He was the slave that drove them to school. He's the one that took the rod and if they didn't do well, would beat them. He's the one that would see that they didn't waste time in the puddles on the way, but actually got to class. The pedagogos, the pedagogue, was not the teacher, but the one who drove drove the child on in his education. 
And so he tells us that the law is a guardian, and the law serves as uh, a kind of whipping boy, so to speak, one that whips us along and shows us uh, our great need. The law, in sum, if I may use Calvin's words, the law shuts up all men under accusation, and therefore, instead of giving, it takes away righteousness. Now, that's a very important thing that John Calvin has said to us. Listen to it again. Uh, The law shuts up all men under accusation. When we understand the law of God, we can't open our mouths. We have nothing to say. We can't say, but, but, I obeyed some of the law. It doesn't matter you obeyed some of the law. Have you obeyed all of the law? Uh, But, but, I'm trying to keep the law. It doesn't matter if you tried to keep the law. If you have broken the law in only one point, then you have broken all, the book of James tells us. And so it, it shuts up all men under accusation. And therefore, instead of giving righteousness, the law does not give righteousness. It takes away righteousness. What Calvin means by that is, Any supposed righteousness that we think we have is taken away when we understand the law and its spirituality. It's just taken clean away. I have nothing to stand on. That plank that I thought that I stood on, if I look down, I find there's nothing under my feet and I'm falling, 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 and I need someone to rescue me and to save me and to bring me out of that pit into which I continue to fall. And so the law leads to Christ in that manner. Fourth thing, the place of the law today. Now, the Apostle Paul, let me emphasize, is focused upon one use of the law. There are several uses of the law, and I'm not going into that tonight. They're all very important, but this is the use that the Apostle is focused on, and so I want you to understand this is only one use of the law. The place of the law today. First of all, notice in this passage that he's emphasizing the place of the law in redemptive history. Now, I have been applying this to ourselves, and I think that's right to do, but his emphasis here is the place of the law in Israel's history, so that when they were in their minority, they were under the law, and God used the law over time in order that Christ would come and that they would be justified by faith and not by law. He's underscoring that. But Having said that there is this place of the law in Israel's history, I think we would be sadly mistaken to say, well, because of that, it has no place in the lives of people today. It does. And so the place of the law in our history, what is that? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 4.15 that law brings wrath. Law brings wrath. Law does not save, it brings wrath. Law does not save, it brings judgment. Law opens our hearts to the truth and the hand of the Holy Spirit that we see that we are under the judgment of God so that we might be justified by faith, so that we will turn from our works and turn to Christ. Galatians 3.22, I think, is important in this regard. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And so the place of the law today is still right here, that the law of God should be read, proclaimed, preached, understood as driving us out of every refuge. It drives us, it it smokes us out and drives us out of every, every hiding place from the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we find here 
the place of the law in today's evangelism. Now, there used to be such a thing as conviction of sin. Do you remember that? Yes, I'm being facetious. But I grew up in a day, and all of that is, is, is thought to be passe nowadays in the church. But I grew up in a day when preachers preached the wrath of God and the judgment of God. And I grew up as a child understanding something of God's justice and judgment and that I needed a Savior. Is that right? Is that biblical? You bet it is. Absolutely right. That's precisely what Jesus does in Matthew 19. Have you ever noticed? In Matthew 19, verse 16, we read, And behold, a man came up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, well, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said, all these I've kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What is Jesus doing? The young man comes. He's a wealthy man, has a lot. Comes to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Been hearing you talk about eternal life. I certainly want eternal life. Well, Jesus says, you know the commandments. Keep the commandments. Now, is Jesus telling him, if you keep the commandments, you'll be saved? Not at all. You see, Jesus knows his heart. You know the commandments. Oh, He says, I've kept all those. I've kept them since my youth. This is going to be an easy entrance into eternal life. And Jesus says, you go sell everything you have and you give to the poor. Why did Jesus say that? Because he knew, he knew that he had a covetous heart. He knew what the idol of his heart was. What is Jesus doing? He is taking the perfection of the law of God and he is showing this rich young man that he can't be saved by keeping the law. He's showing him the judgment of the law in order that he might understand that he needs a Savior, a Redeemer. That is precisely what he is doing. And in today's evangelism, that is almost a thing of the past. And what is happening is that we go out and we tell people, believe, 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 but they have never understood that they're lost. Be saved, but they don't understand that they have something from which to be saved. And so we have spurious conversions just filling our evangelical churches today. Because the evangelism approach that we take is calculated to produce spurious converts. Conviction of sin, conviction of sin. I could tell you about this in my own life's experience, but let me use another example tonight. Alan Montgomery, who's not here so I can talk about him, he's in North Carolina. Um, You know, we just saw on Sunday morning that great invitation of Jesus, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest unto your souls. 
Did you know that that was the verse that God used to convert your elder, Alan Montgomery? Let me tell you how it happened. He was, oh, I think he was about 16 years old. And he was waiting for the ball game to come on. That's no surprise to us, for any of you that know Alan. And while he was doing that, he was reading his Bible. Now, Alan had grown up hearing the Bible preached. Certainly he knew the Ten Commandments, knew the law of God. But he had never known real conviction of sin before until recently. As a young man, he began to dream at night. And he was dreaming a dream that um, in God's providence went through his mind in which he was in a war. He was in a battle. And there were bullets flying everywhere. And he was hit. He was shot. And it hurt. And he said, I remember saying to myself, oh no, I can't die now because I'm not ready. If I die now, I'll go to hell. And then he's sitting there and he reads this great invitation. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Holy Spirit converted him just like that. What did God use all of those years of hearing the law and the gospel? All of those years hearing something, something about the judgment of God didn't mean anything to him. Until, in God's time, God took it to his heart, convicted him of his sin, showed him he was not ready for eternity. And then he heard the invitation. That's what is missing in today's evangelism. Fifth point. The law shows the worthiness of Jesus Christ. Now, what I mean by this, first of all, of course, is that it's just the old picture of the diamond shining more brightly when you put it against the black background. (laughs) When we see the blackness of our souls, our guilt, our need, the judgment of God, then we see Jesus as Savior, and he shines out all the more brilliantly and wondrously because we actually see our need of a Savior. Let me say this. Even though I think it's important that we preach the law of God, the Ten Commandments, that we go to Sinai, that we understand that this law must be be grasped in some way if ever we are going to be saved, let me tell you, I have always thought that the best place to see the law of God is not at Sinai, but at the cross. Because the law is good, it is holy, just, and good. And the law of God demands perfection. It's a reflection of the perfections of God. But when you look at the cross and there you see Jesus suffering and bleeding and dying for sinners on the cross. Oh, my friend, don't you see the law of God? You see the law of God pouring out judgment on Christ instead of you, don't you, believer? You see the law of God and all of its judgment and justice poured out on Jesus so that you might be free. You see the curse of the law so that you might know that you're not cursed anymore. You see the condemnation, so that you may say, therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. You see all of that when you look at the cross, when you look at Jesus. And it's Christ's worthiness, according to this text, that secures our inheritance. Now notice this. Here in verse 18, For if the inheritance comes by law, 
it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And we've already seen that Christ is the inheritor to whom this promise was made. But then when we move on over to verse 29, we see, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So the promise is given to Christ, it's made to him. But also because you are in union with Christ, the inheritance, the promise belongs to you because you are in union with Christ. And then when we move into chapter 4, we come to verse 28, we will read, Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. (laughs) So, are you in Christ? Are you in union with Him? It's the worthiness of Christ that brought about the fulfillment of this great, great requirement of the law and its wrath so that you might, in Jesus, have the inheritance that belongs to everyone who trusts in Him. So let's bring it to a conclusion. The law of God thunders. You know, when I was, when I was working, at one point when I was working on this sermon for this evening, um, I rewrote it this afternoon, but this was another time this week. Uh, it was thundering and lightning all around me. Uh, the windows in my study were shaking and rattling with the thunder. And I thought, my, what the wrath of God must be. What it must be. But then you think of the cross and you say, oh, what the wrath of God must be that it required the Son of God that I might be free from it. You see, my friend, God can only accept an unbroken law. That's not me. That's not you. Unless you trust in Jesus. He fulfilled the law that was broken. He obeyed the law we broke. He paid the penalty of a broken law so that if your trust is in Jesus, and this is what Paul means by justification, if your trust is in Jesus then in Christ you have fulfilled the law to its furthest extent. In Christ, you owe no debt anymore. So imagine that day, that day of judgment that is to come. There's God in all of His perfection. There's the law of God. Like ten great missiles going right into the souls of those who are outside of Christ. But if you're a believer in Jesus on that great day, you will say, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ who died. It is Christ who justifies. Who is he that condemneth? Alexander Fletcher tells the story, 19th century minister, of going by a jail somewhere in England, and there were some boys outside doing cartwheels, rolling on the grass and acting pretty silly. Boys, he said, you seem to be pretty happy. They said, yeah, if you'd spent three months in that jail and had just gotten out, you'd be happy too. He said, I suppose I would. Well, we have spent, some of us, a lifetime under the law. We've been held captive. We've been imprisoned. It's shown to us that we're criminals against, against God's nature and goodness and grace. 
And when Jesus comes, it's like that hymn we sang just a little while ago. Uh, Long my, my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. When we find that we're freed in Christ, uh, my friend, uh, at least within our souls, we turn cartwheels, don't we? It's a pretty happy thing, a pretty joyful thing. And so go into your week remembering, yes, a sinner, yes, guilty by nature, but I can turn cartwheels this week. I want to see some of you do it uh, because I'm now free from the condemnation of the law because Jesus died for me. That's the message. Never tire of it. Go more deeply into it. I'll be preaching it by the grace of God until the day takes me home. Amen.